Hello everyone and welcome to 35mm Perspective, a podcast where we watch movies and tell you what we thought about them. I am your host today, my name is Jacob Coots, and I am joined today by my co-host Grant Favre. Grant, how are you doing today? I'm uh, I'm doing pretty well, Jacob. I will be honest with you, I just saw the movie today, so I'm still trying to uh, to parse through it mentally, figure out my my full thoughts on it but we'll get into that a little bit later in our feature presentation before that though we've got a couple of other things to take care of we have our trailer section where we're going to talk about some trailers and some movie news that's been going on recently following that we're going to have our industry talk segment which this week is all about how avengers endgame is now the number one best-selling film in box office history overtaking avatar so without much further ado Let's move right on into those trailers. Before we get to our feature presentation this week, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, we have two bits of movie news for you, things that are very big pop culturally. And uh, the first thing we're going to talk about is It Chapter 2. It... It looks pretty scary. What do you think, Grant? Well, I think that it does look uh, pretty scary. The trailer, that introduction, or the very beginning of that trailer, is so incredibly unsettling. <laughs> um, yeah. in, in such a weird way, like, when the woman says, I can't remember the exact line, it's something like, well, you know what they say, some things uh, here just No one never... ever really dies. Yeah, and, like, the pause that she takes... I w- as I was watching the trailer, I was like, oh, okay, that's a weird extended pause. I-, I like had a switch in my brain where I'm like, okay, so something creepy is going to happen. And then it was so long that I'm like, okay, nothing creepy is going to happen. And then it was even longer, and I'm like, so wait, is something creepy going to happen? <laughs> like, Which it's very good for unsettling you because, again, the whole time I wasn't sure what was going to happen there. The cast is incredible, though, I mean, if, if you're just going down a list. So we've got Bill Skarsgård coming back as Pennywise, Jessica Chastain as Beverly, James McAvoy as Bill, Bill Hader as Richie, uh, Jay Ryan as Ben. And, uh, d- dude, it's, again, a star-studded cast. Interesting to see some of these people in these roles. Um, that said, I don't really want to see this movie because I'm not a huge fan of horror movies, and this does look, this does look very creepy. Yeah, that first trailer was really something especially at the end when you had that old lady she she was naked at that point she was just moving so unnaturally it had that kind of uncanny valley effect where you're just like ah this isn't right Mm -hmm. and then the most recent trailer showed a little bit more story and also showed a little bit of the cast in their roles and it just yeah very well acted looks like from the two minutes that they showed you and I'm pretty excited. I didn't think the first one was super scary. It had more funny lines than I was expecting. But it was a pretty good rendition. I usually don't like sequels, but this one looks like it's going to be pretty good. However, they're probably going to make more of them. And that's because these movies, the first one made a lot of money. There's a lot of hype and buzz for this one. And I know the source material was over a thousand pages, but to have three movies about it is, it is a problem. 
<laughs> well, we're going to have to see. And if uh, you want to go see that, Jacob, because like I said, I think <laughs> I'm going to tap out of this one. Uh, it'll be in theaters September 6th of this year. So the other bit of movie news goes beyond just movies. It's something that we mentioned we would talk about um, in a previous podcast, which is Phase 4 of Marvel. It's not exactly a continuation of what we know some of the TV series do, but in terms of films, we've got Black Widow coming out in 2020, uh, directed by Kate Shortland. The Eternals coming out also in 2020, directed by Chloe Zhao. Uh, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings coming out in 2021, directed by Dustin Daniel Creighton. Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, directed by Scott Derrickson, who directed the first Doctor Strange, as well as worked on Sinister and Sinister 2, which is interesting for a number of reasons that we'll get to in a moment. And finally, Thor, Love and Thunder, also 2021, directed by Taika Waititi, who directed uh, Thor Ragnarok. So it's good to see him back. In terms of TV series, um, all of these are going to be on the Disney Plus platform, along with a lot of Star Wars material like The Mandalorian and stuff. So it seems like Disney is actually really pushing their platform, trying to compete with Hulu, Netflix, HBO, all of those. But what they're going to be getting is Falcon and the Winter Soldier coming out in 2020, WandaVision, a Scarlet Witch show coming out in 2021, Loki coming out in 2021, What If, a kind of crossover show. It's going to be the only animated one out of the bunch from what I'm uh, able to ascertain coming out in 2021, and Hawkeye coming out in 2021. So Jacob, again, I always say this, you're the bigger Marvel guy. What are your thoughts on these announcements? I have a couple of interesting thoughts, uh, at least some things that intrigue me about Phase 4. I do like that Black Widow has a female director. I think that it worked really well for Wonder Woman, uh, and when you went back to a male director for Justice League, it was kind of obvious in how they portrayed this uh, female character, and in that case it was Wonder Woman. I, I feel like you just focus less on appeal, sex appeal, and more on the character itself when you have a female director and an attractive female lead. I would agree, especially it's it's interesting here because... I recently learned that Scarlett Johansson is helping to produce Black Widow, which means that she probably helped to either front some of the costs or found somebody to help front some of the costs, which is cool because it means that I I feel that it means that she is tied into this character and feels that Black Widow could be an interesting character or an intriguing role model um, potentially to young women. So it's very cool to again see a a female fronted director and, and set of producers. So I'm excited to see how that goes. I agree. I think it's going to be a movie that I was initially not excited for due to its placement. I think Black Widow has always needed a movie, but to have her die off in Endgame and then get her own solo film. But as we discussed earlier, we don't quite know when this is taking place, so it's probably more than likely going to occur before the events of Endgame. Either way, I'll definitely be watching that when that comes out next year. A movie that also intrigues me is Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, and that's partially in part due to the villain that's going to be in that, and that's the Mandarin, who in Iron Man 3 was played off as a joke, and a lot of people didn't like that. Ended up being this sort of decoy villain. People likened it to saying the Joker, making the Joker a joke, which is ironic. Um, (laughs) But to have... Iron Man's biggest villain in the comics just be played off as some actor. It rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. I personally loved the twist. I love when Marvel does things you don't expect because they don't do that often. And to see the actual Mandarin in this film, I'm, I'm very curious to see what that's going to look like. 
Yeah, Shang-Chi is interesting, too, because, I mean, I was never a super deep-divey comic person, and I feel like a lot of people that aren't familiar with Marvel, to at least a moderate degree, have never heard of Shang-Chi, have no idea anything about him. So it's it's interesting to see him getting his own movie. Yeah, and it'll be the first Asian lead in a Marvel film, so obviously this cast of movies this slate has a lot of diversity in the actors and the directors and i think that could be a good thing for the franchise going forward but the movie i'm probably looking forward to the most is doctor strange in the multiverse of madness yeah i that seems interesting because derrickson basically came out and said that it's not going to be a horror movie, but it's going to definitely be the scariest of all the Marvel movies, which again is why it's interesting that he worked on Sinister and Sinister 2. I'm sure he's going to try and pull some of that into Multiverse of Madness and looping it back around, WandaVision, the TV series, the Scarlet Witch TV series that's going to be on Disney Plus is going to somehow work its way in to Multiverse of Madness. I mean, we're going to have to wait and see how exactly that happens in 2021 when both of those come out. But I'm with you. I think that of all of these is the one that I'm maybe not most excited for, but certainly most interested in. Anytime you have Benadryl Cumbersnatch in a role, I think the movie has a chance to be quite good. And I don't like that he worked on Sinister because that movie was horribly scary. Um, so I... I just will be very eagerly looking forward to trailers and, and watching that movie itself. And then the last one on that list. I mean, we didn't really mention The Eternals. There's not much out there on that. I think there was some interesting casting there. I believe Angelina Jolie is in that movie. Yeah, Angelina Jolie, if I'm remembering, uh, Camille Nanjiani's in it. I want to say that Elizabeth Banks is in it as well, but I might be incorrect there. Let me see if I can get this cast list for us real quick. What? Who have we got confirmed? We have... Uh, Richard Madden, Angelina Jolie, Salma Hayek, Camille Nanjiani, Leah McHugh, Brian Tyree McHenry, Dong Sakma, I hope that I'm saying that correctly, Dong Sakma maybe, and Lauren Ridloff confirmed so far, so I was incorrect, but there's, yeah, some interesting casting in there for sure, and again, I don't know too much about The Eternals, so I'm, I'm interested to try and learn more when that comes out, and I'll be waiting for those trailers since it should be one of the first ones to drop. It is one of the lesser-known stories in the Marvel Universe, but I think everything Marvel's done on that front, Doctor Strange, Guardians of the Galaxy, to franchises that most people didn't know about, those ended up pretty well, turned out pretty well, so I trust their direction with that. I've never loved the Eternal storyline, but I think that on, on the big screen it will play out pretty well. It's just going to be hard to tie that into the events on Earth and, and everything else. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they do that. But speaking to, you were talking about a lot of diversity. The last movie, Thor Love and Thunder, is going to have a female Thor played by Natalie Portman, which is... You mean uh, Thortman? Yeah, Thadily, Natalie Thor... Th- Thor... Thortman. Thortman. Yeah, that's probably it. Thortman. Um, which is interesting. I'm interested to see how they do that. I know that in the comics, Thor has been a lot of different people thor has been a woman thor has been a, f- a frog <laughs> thor has been oh man i wish there's there's a lot there's a ton all throughout so i'm interested to see how they work that in um and it's kind of cool to see natalie portman coming back to the nc mcu it will be definitely interesting to see 
how they also work in Chris Hemsworth because he, I believe he's going to at least make a cameo in this movie. I, they're kind of hush hush, but he was last seen on the ship of the guardians and their movie's not coming out because of the whole James Gunn thing that went down with Disney. So how they're going to write that in this, it's going to be very interesting and to have uh, i believe valkyrie be the first bisexual character which is going to play a role in this mad uh, natalie portman and chris hemsworth it's going to be a love triangle of sorts i i have no idea how this is going to turn out right now it seems like it's going to be a hard movie to manage but you know ragnarok was quite good so yeah um, i was gonna say i, I would leave it to uh TD to do a pretty good job of managing it if i had to guess Moving into the TV series, uh, let's talk about Loki for a second because all of these, the all of the TV series that I mentioned again, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, WandaVision, Loki, What If, and Hawkeye, all of them, with the exception of What If, supposedly are going to take place after the events of Endgame, which begs the question: How does Loki take place after the events of Endgame? I don't know, and I wish it wasn't going to happen. I <laughs> it's. I, you know, it's probably going to be the alternative reality that happened when he got the cube, when they had that failed attempt to get the the Tesseract. That's true. I think that's where they're going to go with that. In which a case, it's not a fake death. Marvel can say, oh no, it was a different timeline or reality. But either way, it just feels cheap, especially because this is... Loki is not even a character anymore. He's just a guy who gets killed off and brought back and says snarky remarks so um you know what if is probably the show i'm most interested in and i would my question is what if loki never existed i mean that might be one of the episodes (laughs) again um speaking a little bit back to the multiverse of madness wandavision is supposed to tie in there a little bit and i believe that uh, it's been confirmed or pseudo confirmed that this is also going to be kind of a darker, grittier, scarier show almost. Yeah, from the news that's been released, that and the Multiverse of Madness are supposed to be the, not necessarily horror, but take elements from horror and incorporate it into this MCU storyline. To have these TV shows play such a prominent role in the phase is interesting, because in the past, all you really had with any Marvel show say the Netflix Marvel shows, all they did was mention events that happened in the movies. There was almost no connection whatsoever. And then you had Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which wasn't exactly part of the phases. It wasn't super well produced, and that had its own issues. So it seems like Disney is making a much stronger play. They're kind of moving away from the box office, not entirely, but a little bit, and trying to get Disney Plus off the ground, and what better way to do that than to make part of their MCU universe contingent on the TV series that they're producing. Yeah, it, it does feel a little bit like a corporate move, where, yeah, between that and, again, a lot of the Star Wars content that's going to be exclusive to Disney+, Plus, um, it does feel like they're trying to really get it off the ground with some some strong shows. And to be fair, these are pretty good contenders for that. Just some interesting uh, facts about Phase 4. This is the first phase to have all of its projects released within a two-year period, 2020 and 2021. 
This is probably the first phase where there won't be any Stan Lee cameos due to his death in uh, November of 2018. However, there's been some speculation that he filmed a lot of different cameo scenes for various movies that they know are being produced. So we'll have to wait and see. Maybe he'll be in some of them or all of them. Uh, this is the first one where an actor will both star in and produce a film. That was Black Widow, like I mentioned, with Scarlett Johansson starring in it and additionally producing it. Um, it includes the television series as part of its lineup in addition to the films, like you said, bringing it, bringing the TV to the forefront. It's the first phase that also doesn't have an Avengers film or a Captain America solo film, which I mean stands to reason given the end of Endgame. Although, again, no, Avengers is kind of interesting, especially since everybody is more or less back and where they want to be. It's the the first phase that'll have a fourth solo film for a character. This is the fourth Thor film, and Thor is kind of, in my mind, an interesting choice to have a fourth solo film for, although, again, Ragnarok did very well, so perhaps that's why. And it's also the first one to have less than six films, and I think that's probably because they're relying so heavily on the TV series. Those are all really interesting facts, especially the two-year period one, I believe, because... You know, phase three was this culmination of 10, 11 years of work. And if this pace continues, phase six will be the end of six years of work. And I think at some point you got to you're almost risking burnout by blazing through the phases. I agree to some end, but it's it's sort of like what I said before when we talked about Endgame, I believe, last week, which is that. Because of how heavy they put the stakes with Endgame, I don't think that fans are going to want to wait another decade for a culmination. So I think that's probably why they're accelerating this timeline, is just to get to that big story again much quicker. That's fair, and you can't... The 10-year period actually worked because they didn't even know that they would get to that point. And so it was to have that 10-year wait in the society we live in, almost four years is almost too long, so I can... I can see why they've increased the pace a little bit. Yeah, exactly. All right, Jacob, let's get out of this segment and move to another segment where we're going to talk more Marvel, I guess. So we'll be right back. All right, Grant, before we get to our feature of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I think it's important that we talk about Something moderately big that happened recently. You could call it that. I mean, you could also maybe call it the biggest thing of its kind, to be fair. <laughs> uh, yeah, and that is Endgame breaking the record for the highest grossing movie of all time. It's insanity. Honestly, insanity. I thought it was going to happen based on just the sheer... The opening weekend was very encouraging, obviously. And we'll talk about why that wasn't smoke and mirrors, but it was a, an intentional buff as we discuss how Endgame broke this record. Yeah, I mean, going back to briefly the Insanity 1, this record hasn't been touched since Avatar. And let's talk about how the fact that that was a decade ago. And it's it's been again very untouchable there have been whispers here and there that certain movies would maybe break this record but this was the first one that clearly stood a chance and again thinking about a decade ago if 10 years ago you had told somebody you know what's going to break avatar's record it's going to be a comic book movie nobody would have believed you because 
No comic book movies had grossed a billion dollars until The Dark Knight, and the closest before that was Spider-Man 3 in 2007, and that wasn't a great movie. That just was Spider-Man 3. It was wrapping up the whole thing. So before this whole Marvel Cinematic Universe, comic book movies did not make this much money. So it's absolute insanity to consider that, again, when it effectively started about 10 years ago, sometime you could argue 2007 to 2009, depending on where you sort of want to put the start of the comic book movie era, to now, just a decade later, it one of these movies is now the highest grossing film of all time. And there's two of them that are in the $2 billion club, which, as we talked about last week, is is pretty exclusive. There's a Star Wars movie in there and then two James Cameron films. And to think that, you know, two fits, 40% of this club is owned by, well, the Russo brothers, but yeah. a comic book movie is crazy. Right now, it's currently sitting at $2.79 billion. So two, uh, $2,794,509. It's just a whole bunch of numbers. And that was after a $1.2 billion opening weekend, which... Again, insanity. Yeah, sounds crazy. Now, that means it only has a 2.3 multiplier, is what they call it in the box office parlance. A multiplier, I should emphasize, is it's the total run of the movie divided by its opening weekend. So in this case, it earned 2.3 times uh, its opening weekend, which actually, on the surface, isn't that great. But the opening weekend was so big that it didn't matter. Some movies end up with like a four multiplier. Avatars was insane because it opened relatively small, but it just it had the most incredible legs of pretty much any movie out there. Well, it did. And Avatar, I'm sure I don't know its multiplier offhand, but it had an incredible run. Like, I want to say Avatar was in theaters for quite literally almost six months throughout the country. And so its ability to continue to make that money was just riding on the fact that it was in theaters forever. Yeah, and it was also following the trend of a top-grossing movie at the time, which was an original tale, or at least not a, not a sequel. If you look at the highest-grossing movies, you know, Titanic wasn't a sequel to anything. It was a retelling of history, but uh, Avatar was an original film. So to think not only a comic book movie, but a... <laughs> episode 19 of the most expensive tv show ever yeah or <laughs> it's it's crazy and i know we've said that word a bunch but just to think of the scope of this the pre-sale tickets for this movie alone broke pretty much every movie ticket app that existed when they released i woke up at 802 the day they released i was getting ready for class and i just looked over at my phone and i had a notification for my amc app Oh, Avengers Endgame tickets are online. Uh, Pre-sale tickets are online. And I said, oh, I might go try to get one right now. It might be a little bit busy. And my entire, uh, not even the app, my account crashed. I wasn't even able to (laughs) access my account to try and get a pre-sale ticket for this movie. And that was happening on Fandango and a bunch of these other uh, movie ticket buying apps. So... You know, that was a great start, an encouraging start. It created more hype. And because it was such a rare commodity, these tickets for this movie, it, it caused even more people to want to go see it as soon as they could. And the limited time spoiler ban that they placed online. Yeah, there were a lot of contributing factors, I think, to to the reason that this became the highest grossing movie of all time. I sort of hit on it last week, but again, and, and I sort of hit on it here. 
the Marvel Cinematic Universe started in, I believe, 2008 with Iron Man. And so this is the culmination of a decade's worth of films, effectively. I remember going to see the first Iron Man. I, get, I got pulled out of school because I was in middle school at the time. <laughs> to go see Iron Man with my dad. And like, there's a lot of memories associated with the Marvel Cinematic Universe to me. So I think that's true for anybody that, you know, grew up in the late 2000s and early teens to the point where even if you only have a cursory or passing interest in the MCU, and if you haven't seen all of the movies, you're still going to go see this one because it's the end. This is where everything comes together. And you'll maybe miss some jokes, but you felt like, I'll still know enough to go and see it. And I think generally they did a good job at making everybody feel integrated, provided that you had seen Infinity War. If not, you're a little bit out of the loop. But <laughs> but given that Infinity War is also one of the top five highest grossing movies of all time, people have probably seen that too. Yeah, and that was probably also, so not only was it this culmination of all these different things, but it was a continuation of one of the biggest movies of all time that ended on a major cliffhanger. So you had people wanting to go see what happened. How did they beat Thanos? Because you know they're not going to kill off all these billion dollar grossing characters. No. Um, so it really relied on that. They were initially going to name it Infinity War Part 2, but they saw some data that suggested that Part 2 movies aren't going to crush any ceilings because it's it, people view it as kind of a... They just don't like it, especially when it's a book being split into two movies. They view it as kind of a dishonest cash grab. So they switched it to Endgame, which also is a very intriguing title. And all their trailers just centered around this wrap-up to this story they've been telling throughout the first three phases. Having this, you know, these emotional shots of the first time these characters were introduced and where they are now after this blip, this snap event. So... I mean, everything they did, everything they changed beforehand, including the title of the movie itself, really added to its total box office revenue. And they even released it a couple weeks earlier because they saw the slate of movies that was going to come and they wanted to get a head start on the box office market. They wanted to open on a slower weekend. And even that had some huge benefit to them early on, especially. Yeah, everything surrounding the movie's release in a lot of different ways, like you just mentioned, I think that all really contributed. Again, the word of mouth between the ticket sales crashing and again, if somehow somebody hadn't heard about it, uh, the buzz from the trailers and from, again, the release date getting bounced around a little bit, all of that, they came through everyone's phone, everyone's timeline, everyone's feed somehow, whether or not you got it directly from the source from you know Marvel or Disney or the Russos or whatever, somebody was talking about it word of mouth for this movie i think was probably i mean it's it's a hard metric to judge i guess uh, empirically but i think that it's prob it was probably bigger than avatar which also had just massive word of mouth appeal and you you need that in this day and age to beat a score or to beat a an income <laughs> like avatars yeah and they usually judge word of mouth based on the the multiplier because that's usually a good indicator but in this case all the word of mouth was they just centered on getting this massive opening weekend disney even released the movie in more theaters far more theaters than is common worldwide to try and get that number as high as possible because now if you could say this movie grossed a billion dollars in one weekend 1.2 billion in one weekend that's that's only adding to the hype so even though their opening weekend would have been smaller had they opened in the normal number of theaters for a wide release like that. Uh, it might have hurt them in the long run because, again, it was all about this this hype event. P 
people wanted to be a part of it. They didn't want to miss out on what was happening. And so, again, even if they were a casual fan or a lifelong fan, and even at the end of it, people were saying, having hashtags to beat Avatar at the box office, hashtag whatever it takes, which was a tagline from the movie. That's pretty good. Well chosen by the writers. Um, and, and so people just wanted this movie to win, even though it has no impact on their lives and only benefits Disney. Uh, it, it was all about the experience of it rather than the movie itself even. Yeah, and I think that, again, speaking to the various amounts of hype, you're right, Disney, it was obviously very well coordinated that they wanted to release it in a higher number of theaters because they didn't, I'm sure, didn't care about the multiplier because multipliers are cool and impressive, but what really speaks more volumes is the total box office intake. And so being able to say after that first weekend, they knew that, you know, Gizmodo, New York Times, a million press outlets would release the fact that Endgame opened to a $1.2 billion weekend, which, like you said, would just continue to drive hype. And then that's when the whispers of, oh, maybe this is going to, this might be Avatar. That's when that would start. And again, continue a whole new hype cycle, like you said, for people who want to be part of that experience to say, I helped to get this movie to number one and whether or not it deserved it, which people have differing opinions (laughs) on, um, being able to be a part of that is something that people are going to be talking about for a long time. Yeah, exactly. It was the... One of the most massive pop cultural phenomena that I've ever seen. You know, there's things like Fortnite. Fortnite was in this. And that's another one of the biggest pop culture things going on right now. So it, it partnered with everything it could to try and get that um, get that off the ground. And the reviews helped. It got an A-plus on CinemaScore. It got pretty high ratings on Metacritic and Rotten Tomatoes. The YouTubers loved it for the most part because even though I, I wasn't a massive fan of this movie because I, I felt like it could have gone in maybe a more serious direction or, or more somber direction. And people are like, oh, it was just so sad to begin with. It felt like there was a lot of humor interjected. As I was watching it, I was like, this is this movie's going to do well. Like they did. They played all the right cards. They played the nostalgia cards. They had a lot of cool scenes from old movies, new characters, new scenes in these old movies. And it, it worked really well. And so I knew that it just wasn't my type of movie in the grand scheme of things. But I still did respect and appreciate what they did in in spite of that. Yeah, it's interesting because, again, it's, you know, the whispers, like I said, started pretty soon after that opening weekend. Like there had been talk like, oh, this is going to gross a lot. And uh, Infinity War is already one of the top five movies. And this will probably beat Infinity War. Could it beat Avatar? But again, once that opening weekend hit is when that the discussion really started. But you know that at Marvel Studios and when they were talking with higher up at Disney, that was the goal all mm-hmm. along. Like if you look at this movie, if you look at the way it was created, marketed, released, filmed, like written, all of it, it was engineered to become the highest grossing movie yeah, of all Yeah, exactly. Time. It was specifically engineered for that. And to their credit, it, it worked. For now, at least, because Avatar 2 is coming out and there's there's some whispers that it's going to try to crack the record granted i don't think the following for avatar is quite as large and it's been so long since the most recent film and that can either help or harm it based on you know do people want to see how it responds it's almost they almost have to market it as trying to reclaim the throne as the biggest movie of all time rather than the sequel to this movie that came out 10 12 years ago still has some time to come out there's word on the street that James Cameron's working on this brand new 3D technology. So I think he's going to try to eclipse another technological barrier 
and create this whole new experience. And I think if he does that, if that is true, those rumors, that it, it really might have a shot to reclaim that throne. Yeah, and it'll certainly be interesting to see if Disney can once again beat Disney and <laughs> Disney and Disney to get the highest grossing film of all time. Yeah, I I sent you that picture and it was probably my favorite meme or news headline that I've ever just stumbled across because it, it was so well written. I think it was by Gizmodo. It was. Yeah, and, and it said that... Film from studio acquired by Walt Disney finally beats film from studio acquired by Walt Disney for box office record. Which, yep, I was going to say that's, uh, they they know their humor and their audience, I think, there, <laughs> Gizmodo, with a title like that. But well, not only that, sorry, one more, one more thing here. They're talking about another Avatar release, especially prior to Avatar 2 coming out. So yeah. it's possible that Disney might go back on all this hype they created for Endgame and try to get Avatar to retake the throne again. And that would be the most distressing thing for a lot of comic book fans, I think. Uh, especially because Disney wanted them to be part of this experience and then for them to go back and say, no, we want more money for this other movie now. And maybe after that, we'll, we'll release Endgame again. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, I- I don't know. It's going to be an interesting hype cycle because, again, they're going to want to keep this going through all of their various IPs. So, yeah, I'm sure that they're going to try and market Avatar 2 very heavily. And again, if that does eclipse Endgame, of course, that's going to lead to a weird sort of negative, negative positive, I guess, hype cycle for whatever the next big culmination for Marvel is. Because, again, Marvel fans are going to remember, oh, Endgame had the title and then Avatar took it away. And come on, if we band together, whatever it takes, <laughs> let's uh, let's get it back to the top. I mean, either way, massive congratulations to Marvel Studios and to Disney and to the Russo Brothers and everybody involved in not only Endgame, but in the entire MCU. Because like I said, it's not just this one movie that really built up to this moment. It, it was 10 years worth of film and television and comics and books and a million things that all led to this moment so congratulations to everybody even like remotely involved yeah yeah and to the fans who spent most of their hard-earned money to help that get to the end game which was (laughs) the highest grossing of all time yeah absolutely All right, Jacob, I think that's about enough Disney for this podcast. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to be talking about a slightly different movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the Quentin Tarantino film. So we'll be right back with more podcast. All right, Jacob, it's finally time. We're in the actual review portion of the podcast for this week's movie, which is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. Um, We're in the end game now. (laughs) Some of our leads, and there's a lot of actors in this movie, so we're just going to go over a few, and I'm just going to sort of rapid fire. You had Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate, Leonardo DiCaprio as Rick Dalton, Brad Pitt as Cliff Booth, Emile Hirsch as Jay Sebring, uh... Marvit, excuse me, Margaret Qualley, I think, hopefully I'm saying that right, or Qualley as Pussycat, uh, Timothy Oliphant as James Stacy, and I could just keep going on. You also have Dakota Fanning in here, uh, Mike Moe as Bruce Lee, Luke Perry was in here, Al Pacino was in here, you had Kurt Russell, Lena Dunham, there's, there's 
a lot of actors and actresses credited, many of them having just very small and brief roles. So really, l- look at the full cast list. There's a lot of names that you're going to uh, to recognize. And I feel like the cast is where a lot of this $90 million budget had to have gone. Because again, it's it's pretty star-studded. And this is despite the fact that DiCaprio and Brad Pitt both elected to take only $10 million salaries each to work on this movie. I feel like still so much of that money had to go to these actors. <laughs> yeah, and so many of the effects were just practical effects or shots on in the street. So most of the budget was probably spent on these on this cast and also on the uh, achieving the era that they wanted with the uh, authentic time pieces. Oh yeah, absolutely. I've, I've heard stories about how studios out in California or Hollywood will pay absurd amounts of money for various vintage clothes or cereal boxes or what have you like on eBay. Again, they'll pay hundreds of dollars because if they want a piece to look time authentic, it's much easier to just buy those online. I I read a story a while back, I was telling you this off cast, about somebody that sold, I think it was a set like in plastic of Fruit of the Loom, like tidy whitey underwear for like uh, several hundred dollars (laughs) that like they found in their father or grandfather's dresser or something that they just weren't using and it's because there was a shot in the film where the male lead had to be in his underwear and they wanted it to look authentic for the time so like kudos to them for doing that and and you're absolutely right I'm sure that's where a lot of this budget also had to go because to that end it was an incredibly good job being somebody that was certainly not alive in the 60s it (laughs) it felt like everything we were ever told about it visually it was just stunning and like I I just kept thinking about how they must have closed off so many streets for some of those you know long tracking shots of Brad Pitt driving and all of the cars around him or cars from the 60s and how I was like that that must have been madness like they closed off bits of the highway because they couldn't have modern cars like you couldn't have somebody just drive past Brad Pitt's 60s car in a Prius like that would completely ruin the immersion (laughs) so like the amount of time and money that they had to spend doing that too must have been insane but it really did work i think yeah and to avoid those is it anachronisms or anachronisms you got me anachronism yeah. i think but yeah anyway to avoid those in in a movie of this size and this length i think is pretty good because overall there weren't any jarring moments where you're like hey that didn't exist back then no and, and one of my favorite things right at the beginning is there's I mean, this was clearly not practical, but there was the shot of the Pan Am flight, which just made me laugh because I'm like, all right, so there, he's really nailed it in hard here. Like, this is the 60s. Remember, this is the 60s. I mean, like, again, for Pan Am, it it stands to a lot of reason that that's what they would have been flying, but it was just very funny. I found it. And and that's probably one of this movie's strengths, I feel like, since we're in the spoiler-free section, I, I feel like just these, I call them Quentin Tarantinoisms, where he crafts this aesthetic for each movie a different time period a different culture context whatever it is every time and and he's not my favorite director but that is something he he strives for and sometimes it's a little bit on the nose but yeah uh, it's something i can respect yeah especially in in this film where it's about the nature of hollywood granted in the 60s it was interesting to watch him craft that again he always sort of plays with I guess you'd call it historical fiction because a lot of the characters and 
various uh, movies of his either existed or based off of people. For example, Sharon Tate was a real actress. Um, if you are interested in in her, go read more on her. We'll talk a little bit more about that in the spoiler portion because some things aren't exactly spoilers because again they're based in historical fact but I kind of want to just remove those from the spoiler free portion so that we don't get too deep into it Um, but she was a real actress Rick Dalton wasn't a real actor but the character was based on a lot of these 60s TV stars especially in the westerns I mean like 50s and 60s things like Gunsmoke and all of the actors that were in there and things like that so and Cliff Booth was also based on a, a number of different Hollywood stuntmen. The general idea is that Cliff Booth was probably based on Hal Needham, who was Burt Reynolds' um, stunt double and one of his best friends, which again, that sort of stands up to the story how Cliff and Dalton are so close. Um, so again, Tarantino always plays with history a little bit. And in this portion, we're not going to get too deep into how he did that, but just know that there is a lot of historical context here, that the contextualization of the time period was done well, and the contextualization of what was going on with some of the characters was done well if you knew what was going on in advance, which I went in not knowing a lot about what was going on here because I believe Tarantino said that he wanted to make a movie about the late 60s Hollywood with the Manson um, cult and murders set as a backdrop. And I think you told me that. And I forgot it walking into the theater, so I had no context, (laughs) and I was very confused. There were a couple scenes that, not realizing that until later in the movie, there were a couple scenes at the beginning that just seemed very bizarre, and then contextually made sense much later. I almost forgot I told you that. I was sitting in the theater at one point, and I said, hey, that's, isn't that, no, that can't be, oh yeah, it is, Yeah, that guy. Who did a yeah. lot of murders. Well, I, I don't even remember. I mean, we're, we're getting a little bit deep into it, and I guess we'll get more into it in the spoiler portion, so I'll save that. But I want to make, not a correction, I guess, but a statement. When we talked about this movie in a trailer section a couple weeks ago, we said something about how it's either his ninth or tenth movie, depending on how you look at it. And he, Tarantino will vehemently say that it is his ninth again because he considers Kill Bill to be uh, one film just divided and released separately, which is an odd little thing. But the reason that that's important is because for years, for a lot of his career, Tarantino said that he was going to make 10 films and that was it. And because of that, this means that his timeline has one more film left in it versus this being the last one. But I did just want to bring that up since I know that that is a very big part of his career and something that will be talked about. So we are aware. Um, it was just making a note that he has 10 theatrical. This is his 10th theatrical release, even if it's not his 10th movie. Yeah. And as you said, that is an important distinction because of the implications that has on his career. And apparently he wants to go into screenwriting and theater afterwards, which is just hilarious to me. Yeah. Tarantino and stage acting don't i mean they they don't mesh for me when you think about (laughs) it just reminds me of that scene in zootopia where the bunny's like blood 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 death i feel like that would be his first stage production it would be yeah a lot of that and a lot of him writing climactic scenes he's like and then you're gonna you're gonna bash his face in and you're gonna see bits of skull fly everywhere and they're like no quentin this is live theater we can't do that And he's like we'll put it in and post and they're like quentin there's 
this is live theater, there's no post. <laughs> that said, he does a lot of uh, practical stuff, which is pretty cool. But <laughs> ignoring that. Um, again, this is this was a hard film to analyze. It was like it was more difficult for me even than Midsummer, which was not very straightforward to analyze. And this part in particular, the spoiler-free portion, is also difficult to talk about for me because I, like I said, it's based on some historical fact, so I don't know what is and isn't a spoiler, and it's, there was a lot going on, there are multiple storylines going on that did eventually tie together, and that's about as much as I want to say right now, (laughs) again, trying to avoid spoilers. The direction was very Tarantino, (laughs) you could tell. Some of the long lingering shots and scenes and uh, um, the actors were all incredibly good. Uh, Margot Robbie is looks a lot like Sharon Tate. So that was an incredibly good casting decision. It was an interesting decision to have DiCaprio play the character that he did. But I felt that he did a good job of it. Uh, something again we'll get into later. Uh, Brad Pitt was pretty much perfect i think in his role and i'm not a huge brad pitt fan um but he played the part of i mean you've seen some of it in trailers where he's kind of the cocky stunt man thinks he can live through anything because he's done all this crazy stuff in the name of hollywood and i mean that might also just be who he is so he's not really acting that much but (laughs) yeah i think he was the strongest part of this movie brad pitt was for sure yeah, and the chemistry that everybody had on screen, everybody that was interacting, uh, those two in particular, having been very good friends in the film, was just off the charts. I think it was probably some of the best chemistry I've seen this year in in different manners to everything else. Again, I bring up Spider-Man a lot because like I've mentioned over and over, Marvel does a pretty good job of doing casting and the chemistry between those characters is very good. But this was a more nuanced sort of relationship between the characters versus Marvel can be a little bit superficial and being able to read into some of those smaller almost subliminal things between characters was very interesting it felt more organic for sure compared to other movies Spider-Man was a great example of a good chemistry but it, it felt a little bit more produced whereas this felt a little bit more genuine yeah absolutely uh, again, it's this is a weird movie in terms of what's spoiler-free and what's not, so I currently don't really have anything else to add for spoiler-free. Do you have anything else, Jacob? No, nah, let's stop talking about how hard it is to do it, and let's just get into spoilers. Well, before we do that, let's talk about some uh, reviews really quick. Hit me with those critical reviews. Critical reviews were generally pretty positive, which is typical for Tarantino. He got an 84% on Rotten Tomatoes, an 85 on Metacritic, and a B on CinemaScore. So he tends to be pretty decent with audiences. He usually falls in somewhere in the 7 to 8 out of 10 range, but critics tend to like his work. 80, 80 from critics is, is usually pretty impressive because they don't like life or anything else. <laughs> yeah, he he's... Again, not one of my favorites. He's very hit or miss. It depends on the film, but he, yeah. you're right. He usually does well for critics. He's kind of a critics filmmaker and Indeed. to some degree can be a filmmaker's filmmaker depending on whoever's watching him. He's had a lot of criticism in the past for a number of various things, but 
he reined a lot of that in here is something else that I will say that I think can be spoiler free is that a lot of the things that he has taken flack for in the past as a director, he mostly skirted around without revealing too much. Um, but all right, Jacob, enough of their scores. Out of 10, how would you rate this movie? It was a tough movie to score because I didn't know exactly what he wanted to do with this movie when I was done watching it. But I still enjoyed myself. It didn't linger too much. I'm giving it a 6 out of 10. Yeah, I have to agree with you. It was a movie that at the end... I generally saw what he was going for. And I mean, like you could see different discrete bits throughout. I wasn't sure how they were all going to link up and we'll get more into that again in the spoiler uh, section. But it was almost a three hour movie that didn't really drag to a three hour or didn't feel like it dragged to a three hour movie. Um, There was a lot of really funny beats, which I wasn't necessarily expecting there to be as many as there were or in the ways that there were. And so for that, I'm going to be giving this a 6.5. That's certainly fair. Without further ado, though, I mean, well, first, if you haven't watched the movie, pause this right now. We're going to be here no matter what. We're not going anywhere. We live in your phone, your tablet, your computer. So give it a pause. We'll be waiting for you. And then you can listen to our thoughts and see if they align with your thoughts. Okay, Grant, this was quite a movie. I left the theater feeling... A little perplexed, to say the least. Yeah. The conclusion was exceptionally Tarantino. Well, that yeah, it was. And that was the weird part to me is that it kept, I felt like I kept getting faked out because like I sort of alluded to in the spoiler free portion, that was really the only, when you think of Tarantino again, it's like, like you made the joke, like blood, death, all of these things. And there wasn't a whole lot of that throughout there were a couple of scenes the spawn branch scene where it felt like oh it could maybe go that way and i mean you know the kid getting hit in the face a couple times and getting bloodied and like losing teeth or whatever that was fairly tarantino especially given that it was all in slow motion but i kept waiting for it or for something you know for a car crash or something very visceral to happen and it just didn't right up until the very end because the whole movie i it sort of reached a point where I'm like, okay, I was checking my phone, not because it was dragging, but because I was confused. I was like, I can't tell where we're at in the movie. And I was wondering <laughs> if the time, like, I was like, okay, so we're two hours in, which means that we've got about 40 minutes left. So that means we must be nearing the climax, I guess, but I can't really tell. And so, you know, not until, what is that, like the last 15 minutes or so. And I was like, oh, there's the Tarantino. That's that's what I've been waiting for. <laughs> and then it just comes on strong. Two hours and 20 minutes of foreplay. These scenes, these slow moving scenes, and sometimes you expected them to go somewhere and they just didn't quite get there. Like that Spawn Ranch scene. and Yeah. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm waiting for that Tarantino catharsis or whatever. And then yeah, and then it happened and I was just, oh my goodness. This, well, I mean, this, it was like interesting. Watch- the Spawn Ranch scene in particular is interesting because he did that tension very well. Like that was very clearly the most tense scene in the movie. Even beyond the weird standoff that he had with Tex at Dalton's house. And Tarantino does tension well, obviously. It just, it it felt somehow lower stakes than, say, Inglorious Bastards. And again, that that's the big thing is like, there was still catharsis in that scene in Inglorious Bastards. If I'm talking about like the opening scene with Christoph Waltz giving an incredible performance and 
the way that that scene is shot just again the long lingering camera shots and again something Tarantino is known for is incredibly incredibly long scenes which I also felt like we didn't have as much here except again right at the beginning the scene with Al Pacino but that aside there was still some catharsis in the Inglorious Bastards scene because the girl gets away and you know you expect it again sort of as a Tarantino thing like oh no he's gonna he's gonna align that shot and hit her and then he misses but there's still a resolution there that I felt there wasn't with the Spawn Ranch scene. I mean, like, Cliff was still checking on his friend who appeared to sort of be okay, but, I mean, not really. He'd kind of been inducted into this cult, kind of, or they were at least using him for his land sort of weird thing. But, I, I mean, I guess the catharsis there was, like I said, the scene of uh, Cliff beating up the guy, but I don't know. It just didn't... Because you, you wanted there to be that moment with him and Tex, which I guess comes at the end of the movie so it's it's like this big tensiony build up the entire time so to that end it was cool but it wasn't quite what i expected and then like you said yeah that release at the end was i don't know if justified's the right word but what i think everyone in the theater was waiting for certainly and because it took so long a couple people were just not caught off guard because they knew it had to happen in this movie but to have it happen at the very end without much tarantino traditional tarantino before that not jarring, but it, it was a little surprising. And this, I heard this one guy leave the theater shout, if Brad Pitt didn't trip balls, this movie was terrible. Which I think he was probably expecting a more traditional film from him. Yeah. And to be fair, the way this was marketed, he said it was going to be the most like Pulp Fiction that he's ever directed. And I don't think that was necessarily true. I mean, I don't think he's wrong necessarily <laughs> but his to be fair like the breadth of his movies is kind of wide despite the fact that there's some common themes that he has throughout them so i don't know i guess maybe that's true a little true but only by uh, consolation something i was expecting more of was Margot robbie i i think she's very talented as an actor and for most of the movie she was just giving facial expressions and it seemed like they paid her for those instead of lines and her feet of course because tarantino loves those but yeah i would love to see the cinema sins video where it's not them actually counting off sins just counting off the number of times that you see a girl's bare feet because again if that's not tarantino i don't know what is <laughs> it'll be quite the feat for them to put that together yeah. but yeah i i thought she was going to be more featured and you know it wasn't exactly her story but she was one of the stories and and it didn't really develop toward the end much like the action yeah i'm i'm kind of perplexed by that as well i don't know if it's because they wanted to have some sort of respect for sharon tate the memory of sharon tate for those who are not aware sharon tate was an actual actress wife of roman polanski like was in the film who so at, at that end scene those were um people that were part of charles manson's family in quotes like his cult and in real life they went to Roman Polanski's house and killed Sharon Tate and three of her guests just like were there in the film killed again an eight months pregnant Sharon Tate obviously turned out a little bit different uh, in this movie so apparently all Roman Polanski needed was and Sharon Tate needed was Brad Pitt as their next door neighbor and the whole thing would have been avoided <laughs> I don't know it was an interesting I mean again part of the problem for me is that I had forgotten it was about 
sort of about the Manson murders and I didn't know much about them and I didn't know anything about Sharon Tate going in. So yeah, I initially had that same thought. I'm wondering if people that are more versed in that and knew who she was, if that just sort of added attention throughout the whole movie, because I certainly didn't feel it. It was interesting though, looking to her as a juxtaposition to Dalton, who felt like his career was going downhill and, you know, he's not this good actor and he he can't be a film actor. He's just been this, this sort of bit piece actor on TV for years. And you see him give much, I would say much more dynamic performances than Sharon Tate does, at least what's shown there. And it's interesting because he feels, Dalton feels like no one is interested in him or any of the pieces that he's playing. And then you hard cut to Uh, Tate, who is in a movie theater that she got into for free because she's sort of recognized. And they're like, oh, you were in this movie. Yes, please, please come in. And she's sitting there listening to everybody laugh at her performance and have a good time at her performance. And that's the thing that Dalton feels like he's not getting. So it is interesting to see the two compared to each other. And I think that was part of the point of those two characters. And then again, using Booth as a very different comparison about how he was Dalton's stuntman. And he did a lot of you know, the heavy lifting, carrying the load, as they said in the movie. And yet he's out of work. He's effectively just a housekeeper for Dalton, even though they're good friends. And so the three storylines were each interesting on their own and individualized. And the whole time I was just wondering how they were going to mesh together. I I would have been actually very interested to see this as like an HBO miniseries almost. Yeah, that would have been a good outlet for this type of storytelling it the movie definitely needed to be the length it was even though some scenes weren't exactly necessary i think it did show the foils this juxtaposition between even the lifestyle of booth and his friend rick dalton to have early on it showed him and his little rv making mac and cheese and eating out of the pan and then it cut to you know dalton laying in the pool and drinking his expensive drink and practicing lines those two, the difference between those two lifestyles and then, of course, the one with Sharon Tate, I guess if you look at it from that lens, it, it was um, probably quite intentional to use the characters the way he did. Yeah, and another thing that I felt like was fairly intentional and was interesting and amusing is some of the the ways that it was shot. And, like, Tarantino almost... I He's almost parody of himself in this movie a little bit which I think is by design like we made a joke about the feet thing but it felt very front and center here like over and over and over and over and I think that that was intentional not only because it's something that people have come to expect from him but because it it buys into this whole idea of spaghetti westerns which is a film genre which was westerns made generally in like the 50s 60s and 70s in Italy they were called spaghetti westerns because again Italian westerns and these movies uh, this whole genre really is notorious for let's say borrowing tropes and scenes and lines from other movies where what that really means is they would make effectively the same movie as some other movie i can't remember the specific film offhand and i wish i had this ready there was an italian director that directed a movie in the early 70s i believe uh, one of these italian westerns that a japanese a director who had directed, I believe, a samurai film that was very similar said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm impressed. You made a very good movie. It just happens to be my movie. Because that was, that's kind of the whole genre. And so it was interesting because, again, 
Dalton goes to Italy to play leads in films in these spaghetti westerns where he previously he felt like he was never going to be a lead in a movie and he lost his TV show and he made a lot of people lose their jobs because he wanted to pursue this movie acting career versus just sticking around being a, a TV actor as he sort of mentions early on and yet he finds his maybe not calling but his fortune almost in these uh, Italian movies and so it was interesting to see the the way that they played with that idea of spaghetti westerns on almost a meta scale with this movie and I, I just found that kind of interesting it certainly did get meta at points i just wish for the most part like i was kind of excited to see how it would play off this charles manson backdrop and i just wish there was more charles manson to be honest he had that one scene where he went to the where when sharon tate was home he went there and was asking around and and jay was talking that it felt very creepy and even if people didn't you know a couple of my friends didn't understand what that was going in that that was charles manson but they still felt it was really weird and so it you know they have that in just a couple of lines i only imagine what they could have done with a whole movie or at least a few more scenes of him oh yeah charles I, I didn't in there. realize it was him and if he said who he was i missed that completely so i i also didn't catch it and it felt like it felt very bizarre, again, not realizing what it was until after the fact I looked into it because I was like, well, I thought Charles Manson was supposed to be in this movie. And then seeing that it was him, I'm like, oh, that gives a lot more context. And yeah, it justifies this weird feeling. And I I don't know if the scene was, strictly speaking, necessary. I mean, maybe it was to set up, to set up the onus for the culmination of the whole movie. But yeah, the creepiness was definitely there in those again what 15 30 seconds i thought that was going to be a scene where something violent was going to happen so that was another little tease i i picked up again i had forgotten it was about charles manson but as soon as he came on screen i was like oh this has to be him and and it, and it was but and to that end like you said because you weren't sure what he was going to revise to his own story you know, you, oh man, this is going to play a big part later in the movie. You know, they're going to go to this house and maybe they're going to follow the truth of the story. Sharon Tate will be murdered, that kind of thing. Um, and it didn't happen. So it could have been just there to create the tension for people who knew that story going in. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Again, this is one of the few movies that I feel like we haven't been hypercritical of thus far. And I, I don't know. It there were there were weird things, like I said, some scenes that felt like they could have been revised, like you said, Margot Robbie wasn't used to her full potential. There were some other weird things though. Again, things that were very Tarantino that again I think was meant to sort of push forward this narrative of it sort of being its own sort of meta spaghetti western, like where they had this weird narration just interspersed randomly throughout and the the odd way that they told a lot of backstories where it was flashbacks but it wasn't always clear that it was flashbacks and and oh yeah that was the only method of getting some backstory that we had and it was a i don't know it it was bizarre there was and it keeps coming to mind the scene where they're talking about the shot of dalton in his james bondish spy movie thing jumping the car onto the barge and then it pauses the frame and says cliff with an arrow to the car which again is interesting and amusing, but it seemed so 
out of context with respect to the rest of the movie. And I mean, again, we got some narration at the beginning, then we got some narration at the end, but the center of the movie didn't have much of it. And I guess maybe that's the whole once upon a time part, like it's supposed to be fairy tale story booky, but it doesn't feel like that throughout. And so it's bizarre. And the title is also a little bit bizarre in that regard, although I can understand the idea of it again, trying to be like, well, here's the fairy tale that everybody thinks they're going to get. Well, everybody thinks Hollywood's a fairy tale, I guess I should say, but here's the real story is I think sort of what the idea was. It was there. I hate narration in movies. I think it's just lazy. I think a good movie should never rely on narration, especially consistently. And, you know, to the end of... It seems like we have been very kind to it. It's because a lot of the critical parts were captured in these small things. There was a lot of weird narration bits, weird editing, jump cuts, things I wasn't a fan of. It was a little bit more bizarre than than even a normal Tarantino movie in terms of editing style. And I did not enjoy those elements. I agree. The narration, it was very on the nose at the end there. And it kept taking you out of the story, which I felt like they could have just told anyway they could have had the actual characters say these lines and it would have had more meaning but instead it's like oh no he went overseas and now he's married to this italian person because why not and now they can't be friends anymore but they're gonna get blind drunk and then then it threw them into this scene where all the action occurred so it just it wasn't for me the way some of the storytelling went down well i mean i'm with you because it was again you got the narration at the beginning then generally a normal movie, then a little bit of narration at the end that almost yeah. seems like a wrap-up. But then <laughs> it goes beyond that wrap-up into almost a, a CSI episode where then they're narrating at this time this happened and at this time this happened because they're going into, you know, August 8th, 1969 when Sharon Tate was murdered, which again, I think if you recognize that historical context, that raises tension on its own. But if you're not familiar with that date, already or the events that happened it just seemed confused and um, it definitely pulled you out of it but let's talk about of course the big scene the big tarantino scene at the very end what were your thoughts on that oh my brutality it was so brutal and they brought up the flamethrower and i was like of course because why not and they they really made a funny joke they played off that at the end and even then, like, I, the immediate follow-up to that where he went upstairs, like, Jay was being a little bit creepy behind the gate. I thought there was going to be more murder to occur. Yeah. Um, did not happen that way. But I I had my fill at that point with the dog just visibly ripping people. Booth, like, on the table, banging their faces in. Yeah, and that's... It was gnarly. That's what I was getting at when I said that, you know, Tarantino has gotten some heat in the past for various things in this film and the one that he didn't avoid here was um harming women because <laughs> that's kind of a commonality throughout a lot of his films granted it was two girls that were trying to admittedly murder people in a house but it was very vicious and visceral <laughs> harm brought to women on screen a little bit different but in the equal rights age we should be okay with any gender getting brutalized. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I suppose. So again, it's it, it was an interesting and amusing and again pretty Tarantino 
uh, juxtaposition there of Booth having just smoked an acid cigarette and then reconfronting uh, all these hippies from this commune that he met, you know, what, in 40 minutes and probably an hour earlier in the movie at that point. And uh, all of that going down. And again, the the funny quips here and there, even in that scene. And I don't know, it's 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 bizarre and interesting to me. And I can't put my finger on what it is. And he's Tarantino has always done it as a director. And there's a couple other directors that do it too, where like, again, it was brutal and people are getting their faces beaten onto tables and, you know, into a hearth and a dog is basically ripping a dude's uh, ripping through a guy's arm and ripping through a girl's arm and biting a guy's uh, junk off. And yet everyone in my theater was just cracking up laughing. And again, I, I, I can't tell what it is, how, how the direction does that. I think, again, part of it is the juxtaposition to the interspersing of jokes. And I mean, th- there is a funny thing where you can even throughout the fight, you can tell that Booth is on acid because he's just beating the woman's face in and there's a moment where he stops and like looks at her and i think the idea is he's like oh yeah she's she's like passed out or dead or like gone and i don't have to keep doing this but he just continues to do it which again like to (laughs) to brad pitt's very high credit like the face he did made there was perfect and the way that all of those lines were delivered in that scene was perfect or the part where he looks at the knife in his hip and kind of laughs at it and then continues on with what he's doing it's it's a very bizarre fight scene but well choreographed if nothing else very bizarre my theater was a mix between laughter and just oh like visual audible grunts of this absolutely gnarly because it's it's hard to see it's very graphic it's r-rated of course so um you end up with this this culmination that somehow people are laughing at that and and a couple directors get that i guess humoristic brutality in there and and he's one of them for better or for worse (laughs) yeah i mean the other thing that i don't know if I'd say it wrapped up well, but it wrapped up interestingly was the the very end of the movie where again, uh, Dalton's talking to Jay through the gate and then he gets invited up by Jay and Tate to come get a drink. And, you know, he's been talking basically since the beginning of the movie. He's like, man, Roman Polanski just moved in next to me. He's like the biggest, the biggest director in Hollywood right now. And, and look at that. I thought my career was over and I'm just one pool party away from, from maybe being the next big star in his movie. And, it takes one sort of brutal pool party almost since he was out in the pool to finally get invited up. So it is almost, again, this fairy tale-ish idea where at the beginning it's our generally heroine in fairy tales. It's like a princess or something, but in this case our prince, I guess, is presented with a problem and then maybe a resolution and then a bunch of hardships and steps to get through. There were things seem to get better and then get worse back and forth and then finally you get your happy ending as it were and and you kind of got something similar here again very bizarre and i i don't know if it if it wrapped everything up perfectly but i think it's about the ending that you would want for this movie um which i don't know if that says a lot or not (laughs) but it felt like an appetizer but like a big one where i could also go home and be like all right i don't need dinner tonight 
<laughs> it was a, a, a very heavy meal. Something I do want to mention are the little piece of revisionist history that were at least the three most obvious ones. The first being, um, of course, Sharon Tate not being murdered and, and the additions of Cliff Booth and uh, Rick Dalton. Two pieces that some people might find harmful in terms of the retelling of history. Uh, I, I believe it was either Bruce Lee's granddaughter or said were offended by the way they portrayed him in the movie. Um, I felt like it was more comical and not exactly who he was. Maybe played off as some kind of Asian stereotype. Uh, so that was something that was in uh, the news and you should be worried about. That's obviously not who Bruce Lee was. Uh, I don't think many people watch that thinking that's who he was, but it's something to note. And then the other one was, I think it was Squeaky. Yeah. Sa- yeah. Said she did not have relations with uh, the the Spawn Ranch owner. George? Greg? Uh, I believe so. Yeah, George. Um, so that was also added in there. It was a common misconception. Apparently, I mean, can you really trust people in a cult of murder people? Uh, who knows? But uh, of the quote-unquote canon of history, uh, that probably did not happen. So don't go into this thinking it's a history lesson because, again, it's a retelling a reimagination of some of these stories and things going on at that time. It, it, it wasn't meant to be informative or ex- expositional. It was meant to be a movie, uh, entertaining one at that. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like I said, Tarantino generally plays um, fast and loose with history. And uh, I think that that's important to, to bear in mind here. Do you have any final thoughts on the movie, Grant? Anything that you didn't say now yet that you want to say now? Um, you know, I've said a couple times the Tarantino is hit or miss for me, and I still can't figure out if this film was a hit or a miss for me. <laughs> um, again, technically speaking, it was generally well done. There were a couple of odd things here and there, um, but whether or not I personally really liked the film itself i still don't know and i don't know if i'll know for quite a while i agree with that i don't know if i liked it or i know i didn't dislike it strongly uh but my overall feelings on it are kind of mixed it's not a movie i plan to watch a bunch of times but i didn't i wasn't miserable watching it it had some funny lines it had a decent climax i guess it was just a hit or miss movie from a hit or miss director. And I don't think it would be a waste of money. Just go in knowing that there's some slower parts to it. There's this very, very graphic conclusion. Keep in mind the historical context of it and what has changed from history to now. But at least it's not a Disney remake or a sequel. All right, though, Jacob. So if people want to get at us online and let us know why our the reviews we gave are like way too low and this is a masterpiece and it deserved a 10 how can they reach you you can reach me at pwg jacob on twitter that is the letters pwg jacob shoot me a dm mention me in a tweet i will get back to you let me know if you thought this movie was a one or a 10 or a six you can agree with me too that's pretty cool 
And if you want to talk to me, I am PWG Grant on Twitter. That is P-W-G-G-R-A-N-T. If you want to email the podcast, you can email us at 35millimeterpod at gmail.com, 35mmpod at gmail.com. If you have any critiques, any questions about industry talk, a movie that you would like to recommend us to see, something you would like us to talk about in industry talk, please feel free to get at us and we will get back to you. All right, Jacob, thank you for another great week and I look forward to next week. 35mm Perspective is a Players with Game production. All opinions within the podcast are our own. Michael Campos is our composer. All rights reserved.